Good morning, church. Great to be here with you this morning. And uh, thankful that uh, God is moving here in Athens and in Oconee County and love seeing you here on Sunday morning. Uh, God's doing a lot of fantastic things around the family of churches and uh, we'll be glad to report back just the work that God is doing here. Um, H. Richard Niebuhr made this statement. He said, the great Christian revolutions come not by the discovery of that which was not known before. They happen when someone believes radically that which has always been there. That the great Christian revolutions come not by the discovery of that which is not known before. It's not about something new, but rather it's when someone believes deeply in that which has always been there. This morning, I've come not to tell you a lot of new things. In fact, the things that we're going to talk about are pretty basic, but I've come to remind you about some things that we too easily forget. Let me ask you a question this morning. When's the last time you found yourself deeply frustrated? I'm talking about the kind of frustration where your whole body tenses up, the kind of frustration where you can't see straight, your eyes are kind of blurred. A couple weeks ago, um, I had the pleasure to go to the DMV. I think you can see where this is going. I had to renew my tags, and to be honest with you, I don't like doing maintenance things. I'm just not a fan of spending time and money for that which makes my life no better at all. And it was time for me to renew the tags, and my wife told me I need to renew the tags, and I don't have margin in my life to do that kind of stuff, but she said, hey, you got to go out and do it, and so it was a Friday, and Okay, I said, all right, all right, I'll go, I'll try and work it out. And, and most of the time in Snellville, where I live, the DMV is an incredible place. You get in and out in 15 minutes. Uh, and so I went and I got my emissions test and I, I headed to the DMV. And on this day, I noticed there were cars all the way back to the highway. And I thought, well, maybe this is just a line for the drive through thing because no one wants to go inside, but I'm, I'm willing to brave it inside. So I went and parked, and I went to walk up, and it didn't look like there was anyone in line. And the lady met me outside. She said, uh, I'm sorry, Miss Rhodes, um, we're, we're going to have to ask you for your cell phone number. And if you'll give us your cell phone number, we will text you when it's your time to come in. It should only be about 15 minutes, but we need you to stay right here in the parking lot. So I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting, and 15 minutes goes by, and then 30 minutes goes by, and then 45 minutes goes by, an hour goes by. An hour and 15 minutes later, I finally get a text. And again, I'm running busy this day. I don't have time to do this stuff. And I, I walked in there, and I gave them my emissions test, and I gave them my tag info. And then I gave him my American Express card to pay. And the guy looked at me and said, I'm sorry, we don't take American Express. And I'm like, oh, that's okay, because I got a check card in my wallet. And so I go thumbing through my wallet, and my check card is missing in my wallet. And the reason my check card is missing is because my daughter, Emma, who's a senior in high school, had taken uh, her mom's check card out of her wallet and then, therefore, my wife, Kim, because she was going to Costco, had taken my check card out of my wallet. So here I am at the DMV. I have no way to pay. The guy just looks at me and says, sorry, sir, you're going to have to come back later. I walk out of the DMV, and, and I am not happy. I'm not feeling Christian in this moment. I'm definitely not feeling like a pastor. I'm calling my wife on the phone saying, who in the world takes someone's check card out of their wallet? What in the world is going on? I am deeply frustrated. 
I got to go and I got to get my oil changed. So I go get my oil changed. But I got a headlight out, but they don't have any headlights. So then I got to go to the auto parts store and I got to get the auto parts store and come back and, and then fix my headlight. And I go home and I, I get a check card and I, I go back to the DMV and I'm thinking maybe these people have grace on me. They've seen I've already been here for an hour and 15 minutes. But I go back up and they say, sir, you need to go to the back of the line. We will text you when you are ready. An hour later, I, I, I go and I, I pay my tags, and I am just hot. I'm so mad. I'm throwing things in my car. I open the center console, and I'm throwing things in my car when all of a sudden I realize that in the center console is my daughter's wallet that has the check card I've been looking for my whole day. And as I was driving around in the back end of that, the Lord just kind of spoke to me and said, David, it, it, it's easy in your anger and in your anxiety to miss what's right in front of you. And I think that's an important thought for us to begin with today because we're living in a distressed time. We're living in a moment, an environment where if you and I aren't careful in the midst of our anger and our anxiety, we're going to miss what's right in front of us. That in the midst of the COVID landscape, in the midst of the politically charged environment that we live in, we're going to miss the things that God's provided for us that's right in front of us. And that's why I'm so glad to join this series called Family on Mission as you guys have been working your way through the book of Acts the last several weeks together. Because the truth is, the people of God in the book of Acts are living in a distressed moment. Every generation has to live through its form of distress. And in the book of Acts, there's a distressed moment where the people of God are being persecuted. And if you remember, the book of Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke where Luke is talking about this guy named Jesus who's talking about this radical reality of the kingdom of God and everywhere he goes, he's bringing it. Literally, walls are being torn down. Roofs are being broken through. Ceilings are being busted open. Tables are being opened. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, I'm going to be leaving, but you guys are going to be my witnesses in Judea, in, Samaria, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all over the earth. He says, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples are in an upper room, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. They go out, they begin to preach. We know this is Pentecost. It's the beginning of the church, because it's disciples who create the church. Oftentimes, we live in a world today where we try and run church and hope we get disciples, but Jesus knew if you make disciples, you always get the church. And so on Pentecost, the church begins to emerge. And in Acts chapter 3, the disciples, Peter and John, heal a man who is lame. In Acts chapter 4, they begin to testify, and literally people, thousands, are coming to Christ. What begins to emerge in the first four chapters of Acts is a church that's not just surviving, it's a church that's thriving. It's an irresistible force that is moving forward. And in Acts chapter 4, in our passage today, verse 32, we get a sneak peek behind the curtain of how this church was thriving. Verse 32, it says this, it says, All believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. 
There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money and sales, and put it in front of the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas because it means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Here's the big thought this morning that I want to just kind of sear into your souls. The future of the church is not determined by the circumstances of our current environment. Instead, the future of the church is determined by the magnitude of our catalytic investment. That when it comes to the future of the church, it's not about the circumstances of our environment that defines us, but rather it's about what we're investing in. I remember several years ago, um, my travel schedule had me in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in Anchorage, Alaska in January, and in um, Orlando, Florida in August. I'm thinking someone needs to figure out my travel schedule because this is not what what I want to do. Uh, but I, I was traveling to Anchorage, Alaska, and, 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 and to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and, and I think it, we're, in, we're in a kind of authentic community today that we can just kind of make some admissions about ourselves in the South, um, and that is this. We don't know how to do winter here in the South. I mean, literally, right now, you're thinking, was it a good decision to come out today and how cold it was, right? I mean, when, if it gets below 32 degrees, we're thinking about canceling school. I mean, if it ever snows, we're in real trouble. And when I went to... Uh, Uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, it was minus 36 degrees. That is a different level of cold. I don't know if you've ever been in minus 36 degrees, but in minus 36 degrees, I mean, you walk outside and it's like the cold just goes through your body. When I went to Anchorage, Alaska, there wasn't inches of snow on the ground. There were feet of snow on the ground. But the interesting thing was that here in Anchorage, Alaska, and Minneapolis, Minnesota, people were still getting to school and work. I mean, we get an inch of snow in Georgia, and we are shut down. I mean, it is a little bit ironic that no one can get to school or work, but everyone can get, like, out to eat that day into the red box if they need to. Uh, but, but in Anchorage, Alaska, Minneapolis, Minnesota, they get feet of snow. It's minus 36 degrees, and everyone's doing well. And I came back from that trip asking this question, how is it possible for some people to thrive in worse conditions than paralyze others? How is it possible for some people to thrive in worse conditions that paralyze others? And I came up with this kind of observation. The reason that they can thrive in Minneapolis, Minnesota and Anchorage, Alaska with feet of snow on the ground at minus 36 degrees is because they're better invested in winter than we are. We're not invested in winter here. We invest in summer, we invest in spring, and when winter comes, we try and hold on. But here in Anchorage, Alaska and Minneapolis, Minnesota, they're invested in winter. Here's what they're not doing in Anchorage, Alaska and Minneapolis, Minnesota. They're not just hoping winter won't come. They're not just saying, hey, God, could you change the environment, please? Can you please just not send winter this year? They know that winter is coming, and because winter comes every year, they know they've got to invest in winter. If they don't invest in winter, they're going to be shut down. Can I just tell you, when it comes to making a life, most people are trying to change the environment or praying to God to change the environment when I think God is asking us to change the investment. 
Hey, God, if you could just get me a better job. Hey, God, if you could just get me out of this environment. Hey, God, if you could just take care of this, then I could make a life. Then we could have a church. And I think in the midst of this season that we find ourselves in, we might just be looking at God saying, hey, God, if you could just change the environment, then our church could thrive. But maybe in the midst of our environment, God is looking at us and saying, here's the deal. It's not about me changing the environment. It's about you changing your investment. And here in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, we get a sneak peek into the investment portfolio of the early church. This church that's this irresistible force that's thriving in a difficult environment. And there are two big investments that the church is making. The first investment is it's a church, the Bible says, that is investing in their relationship with God. I love verse 33. It says this in verse 33. With great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. They're investing in their relationship with God, which is an investment in mission. That where they go, they are hearing from God and acting on it. Their whole lives are organized around what God is saying. They're not distracted by all the other voices. Instead, they're tuned in and their lives are marked by incredible power. We live in a world today that trades in knowledge and skill. And most of the world today believes the, word, the, the church trades in ignorance and incompetence. But the church of the early church, the church that was this irresistible force, was a group of people who were living and trading in wisdom and power in a world that was trading in knowledge and skill. And the key to living with wisdom and power is learning to hear what God is saying and act on what God is saying. When you hear, at best you're getting knowledge. Jesus would call it foolishness. He says, the wise man is the one who hears my words and put them in the, puts them in the practice. The fool is the one who hears my words and doesn't put them in the practice. If you hear, you may gain knowledge. If you act, you may gain experience or skill. This is the world that we live in. The business world trades in knowledge and skill. The knowledge people hire the skill people. The skill people outsource the knowledge people. It's the way the world works. But it's in that kind of thing that God is calling out a church not to trade in knowledge and skill, but instead wisdom and power. Wisdom is knowledge plus revelation that comes from acting on what you've heard. Power is skill plus authority that comes from knowing who you are and who God is. We should be the most productive people on the planet because we're not fighting fair. We should be a community of wisdom and power. This is Daniel in the midst of exile. This is Esther in the midst of exile. There's always been a people of God who dare to clue into God's voice. And when they clue into God's voice and act on what they've heard, this is what faith is. Faith is hearing the voice of God and trusting the heart of God enough to act on what you've heard. I know you've got all kinds of different voices in your ears right now. You can't turn the television on without hearing about someone's agenda for our world. But the most important voice for us is the voice of God. A follower of Jesus is someone, is someone who says, you know what, in the midst of all the chaotic noise, I choose to clue into the voice of God, and it's the voice of God from which everything beautiful that's been created is created. When God speaks, literally, words create worlds. Genesis chapter 1. 
into. The first investment for us is to invest in our relationship with God. Are you hearing his voice? Are you acting on what you've heard? Is there any sense that your life has wisdom and power? I know many of you are here to go to college, and college can give you knowledge, but it can't give you wisdom. I know many of you are here in your first jobs, and your first jobs can give you skill, but it can't give you power. And the world is waiting for a group of people with wisdom and power to emerge. The second investment, they didn't just invest in their relationship with God, but the second investment they made was a relationship, was investing in their relationship with each other. Did you hear the words here? No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them, for, for, from, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as any had need. In a moment of distress, it's easy in these moments where it feels like everything could be taken from you to just hold on to what you have, to just kind of hold on for your own protection. But in a world where it would have been easy to hold on to their own stuff, their own resources for their own protection, they invested their resources for other people's progression. That it's in these kind of moments like we're living in now that we can either live with clenched fists or open hands. We can spend our entire life trying to protect ourselves or we can spend our lives Daring to invest in others. This was a group of people who wasn't just invested in mission. They were invested in family. They lived generously, and they lived with the posture of open hands. See, guys, here's the problem with living with closed fists. When you live with closed fists trying to hold on to what you have, not, not only trying to hold on to what you have, but it's impossible for you to receive anything. See, the posture of open hands is both the posture of giving and the posture of receiving. And oftentimes when we're stressed, we're in the middle of a moment of distress. Our tendency is to grab hold and to hold on for our own protection. But this group of people dared to do life differently. They did life generously. They didn't just live by undeniable authority. They lived in uncommon generosity. And it was in opening their hands so that they could give and also receive that a thriving church was born. And with these two investments, their investment in their relationship with God, their investment in their relationship with each other, the result became, verse 32, all believers were one in heart in mind, the result was a radical unity. And this radical unity may seem incidental to you, but actually this is the prayer that Jesus prayed before he went to the cross in John chapter 17. Jesus prayed one prayer. If you could hear the words of Jesus praying for you, praying for me before he goes to the cross, I know we talk about praying for Jesus and praying to Jesus, but I wonder if you've ever clued into what Jesus prayed for you, what Jesus prayed for me. John 17, here's what Jesus prayed for us. He said this, he says, my prayer is not for them alone, but I pray for those 
who will also believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I may, and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent them. I have given them my glory that you gave to me, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus' prayer for his church wasn't that it would just simply grow, it's that it would be one, that in their unity they would testify that just like the Father and Son and Spirit are one, three in one, that the way they measured their success was not in how many people came to any room or any field, but the oneness, the unity, the uncommon unity, the radical unity of one people with one voice in one mind. And Jesus said this, he says, you want to evangelize the world. You want to know what the church's greatest testimony is to the world. It's when the church is of one mind. We live today in a world that has so many different voices and too often our churches are just echoes of hollow voices that promise to solve our world's dilemma. But when the church is tuned into the voice of God and the people of God are tuned into each other, Jesus says our greatest testimony, our greatest missional gift is when we are one family on mission, speaking with one voice, living in perfect unity, not uniformity, not a place where there's no differing of opinions, but in a place where our radical generosity and the wisdom and power with which we live becomes a triumphal voice that overcomes the noise. And I believe, guys, that the world is waiting for this kind of church to emerge in the midst of distress a family on mission. One story, and I'll wrap up today. Um, I, I lived in Polly's Island, South Carolina, before we moved here to um, Georgia. And in Polly's Island, South Carolina, um, we met a couple named Sherry and Blair. They owned the local coffee joint there in Polly's Island. And I'm pretty sure Blair was stoned most of the time that we um, had conversation. I mean, the question was not, does he smoke pot? The question was, when does he not smoke pot? And um, he was making the coffee and all that kind of stuff. But they also had opened up their coffee shop for us to do some meetings in there in Polly's Island. And we began meeting there. And um, then in our little family on mission, our missional community, our house church, um, one time around Christmas, we decided that we were going to all get together. We we're going to give some money, going to pull some cash out from all the families, and then we're going to break up into groups, you know, like four groups of four or five, and we're just going to go out and decide how to bless some people with the money that we had. And, and so I remember our group kind of got our money, and we, we, we broke in, and we began to pray, said, Lord, who do you want us to bless today? And God brought to our mind uh, Sherry and Blair. And we knew that it was like their one-year anniversary, and so we went and we got a bottle of wine, and we got a card and a gift card for them. And we didn't know whether they would still be at the coffee shop, but we went to the coffee shop and they were just coming out to celebrate their one-year anniversary. And I'll never forget when we were there, we gave them the bottle of wine and we gave them the gift card and we, we, we gave them a little bit of affirmation about, so we were so thankful for the way they had opened up their coffee shop to us. 
we talked for about 10 or 15 minutes, but I'll never forget Sherry in that moment beginning to tear up. And she made this statement, and it's one that I have never forgotten. She said, you know, a long time ago, I left the church. I made some decisions in my life, and I was pretty sure the church had no room for me. Several years ago, I left the church, she said. But then she said, but I never thought my church would come for me. She was living in the world, pretty much turned her back on God, was pretty sure that God was done with her. But what she needed was a church that was talking with one voice. A church that wasn't just simply protecting its own stuff. A church that was a family on mission. And what she was waiting for, she didn't even know that she was waiting for it, but what her soul was waiting for was not, was not for her to go to church, but for the church to come to her. I'm telling you guys, there's a world out there that is waiting for the church to emerge. And it may not come through our doors, and it may not meet in our fields, but here's the deal. It is waiting for us to go to them. It is waiting for us to be a family on mission. It is waiting for us to speak with wisdom and power. It is waiting for us to carry the heartbeat of God in our unity. And as the church emerges, the world begins to wake up. So I call you today. I call you to uncommon generosity. I call you today to undeniable authority with your life. I call you to relationship with God and relationship with others. I call you to radical unity because the church, or the world, I'm sorry, is waiting for the church to emerge. There are Sherry's and Blair's all over our world. And too many times what they hear is a church just echoing the chaotic voices of the world around us. What we need is a church who speaks with wisdom and power in every nook and cranny of society. We're calling for Daniels and Esthers to rise up and be the church. You do not have to be a product of your environment. It's time for us to change the investment. We are a family on mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word today, for the testimony of those who have gone before us, and the challenge that their lives brings to our lives. May we, here at Grace Athens, be a church that functions in wisdom and power. May we live in radical unity and uncommon generosity. May the undeniable authority of who you are in us be transferred through us. And may the world around us, in Athens, in Watkinsville, know that there is a God because they saw a church that was a family on mission. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.